0: Hello, my name is Glenn Bloomstrom and thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Today we're going to be talking about suicide and that can bring up a lot of very, very difficult memories. And uh, if those memories become uh, louder than the podcast, just encourage you to take a pause, pause that and maybe call someone who cares about you, who knows you and process some of those memories. And then also, we really want to encourage you if you yourself are thinking of thoughts of suicide, we really encourage you to call 988, uh, speak to a trained counselor, and uh, don't keep this a secret. We really care about you. And thanks for joining us for this podcast today on suicide prevention ministry.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, and with me is my co-host, Shelly Riggs-Jordan. Hey, Shelly. Hey, Matt. How are you today? I'm doing all right. Good to see you. Good to see you. So uh, for this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. As you heard in the intro message from our guest, Glenn Bloomstrom, uh, this is about suicide prevention. And normally we talk on the front end of the episode about how that subject interacts with our work at the Center uh, and Shelly will mention something about that in just a minute. But, um, but because this is such a sensitive topic, we want to be very sensitive about that topic. Um, so we're just kind of going to get out of the way today and, and move to the interview. Uh, And we'll also have a shorter back end of today's episode as well. Um, But as was mentioned by Glenn at the very beginning, if you are struggling with suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation, uh, there are resources, and he mentioned some. And if you need to pause this podcast at any point, step away and and get some help, uh, we recommend and and ask that you do that. And Shelley, you had a really good insight about um, suicide prevention or the topic of suicide in our work, because our work is really about congregations coming to us, right? And asking us questions. Um, So, why don't you share what you were thinking about that?
2: Yeah, Matt. So, when we were talking earlier about um, how this impacts our work, I've never in five years had a congregational leader or pastor come to me and ask for resources surrounding suicide Mm -hmm. and suicide prevention. Um, My hope is after listening to this podcast today, that that will change and that people will start to break that stigma a little bit and figure out what it means to be able to talk through this topic.
1: Yeah, yeah, and as we were talking, we just kind of surmised that because it's such a sensitive topic, and it's really hard to talk about, mm-hmm. um, so it's probably not something that people want to lead with when they come talk to us. Uh, we do talk extensively on a lot of our other podcasts about how uh, mental health, how congregations are reaching out to the Center for Congregations about mental health, so I would encourage you to check out any of the, of the number of podcasts about mental health, uh, but today we're just going to go ahead and get to our guest, Glenn Bloomstrom. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are here with Glenn Bloomstrom, who is the Director of Faith Community Engagement with Living Works. He is a 30-year military veteran in the chaplaincy, and he has a passion for veterans and rural clergy, and also just pastors in general, and the topic of uh, suicide prevention. So, Glenn, thank you so much for being here uh, for the Center for Congregations podcast.
0: Thanks, Matt, and thanks, Shelley, for having me. It's a real privilege.
1: So, Glenn, I'd love to kick it off just with a little bit about your background. Um, so, you know, this is a topic uh, that, you know, suicide prevention is, is a serious topic and and not something that most people would just kind of dive right into as something that they choose in life. Uh, so tell us about your journey and, and kind of how you became interested in and involved so much in this topic area. Well,
0: thanks. Yes. After graduating from seminary, I uh, went on active duty in the U.S. Army, and that was in the um, Uh, early 80s. And there were still a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans at that time, uh, some with a lot of, uh, you know, combat trauma. And uh, so I was immersed immediately in a a variety of things like domestic violence and uh, the soldiers going to jail and suicide. And really, from the first years that I was in, I knew I needed some training. And then through the arc of my career, the Army sent me uh, for a master's degree in marriage and family therapy. And uh, later, I was assigned to the Pentagon uh, to work with policy training and development. And at that time, I was introduced. we, We had a really great training in Topeka, Kansas, lots of uh, slides and lots of very smart authors and, and scholars who really taught us about suicide prevention. But I went to a training called the ASSIST training. It stands for Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training. And it was put together by a company, Living Works. And when I went through that, I said, this is what I've been looking for. And so... Um, To make a long story short, we brought that assist training into the Department of Defense and really since about 2000, we have trained 600,000 in DOD. Wow. And it's given a lot of confidence. It's given a lot of um, uh, power, I guess, and mercy and compassion to many, many chaplains and clergy over the years. So I really believe in suicide prevention training and I think it can help clergy to become better pastors when they're facing uh, troubling uh, issues like suicide and they can do it with confidence and wisdom.
2: I imagine that um, even for some pastors, lay people in general, Part of the fear is, what if I say the wrong thing? And so we tend to maybe not say anything out of fear for making something worse. And I think even some people probably have difficulty saying the word suicide. Um, They use all kinds of other euphemisms. So how do you help people kind of move past that when you think about training folks?
0: Well, number one, training helps to alleviate many myths uh, Shelley, uh, and uh, and using that word, and, and why is there so much stigma about <laughs> the word suicide? Well, it's because it's about life and death, I think, mm. and we realize the responsibility we have when somebody's raised that issue. I, I don't want to do this wrong, right? You know, and then if you think about a pastor. Uh, who is relying on their ministry. If they do this wrong, will they lose their job Mm -hmm. as well as a life? And so most pastors kind of want to say, hey, this is not my field. Uh, are, are you thinking of suicide? Do you have a plan? And and right away, the person can tell, boy, oh boy, Pastor is really nervous, isn't she? <laughs> you know? <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shouldn't have brought this up. And um, we just want to get them to somebody else other than us. So, you know, training will help to alleviate many myths and get us comfortable with hard topics like suicide.
1: Yeah, and and because it's... Folks are reluctant to talk about it. They may not be aware just how significant is uh, how significant of an issue is suicide in congregations.
0: Well, especially if you're a rural pastor, you're a part of this of, of the whole uh, network within that region, within that community. You are known even by people who don't darken the door of your of your parish, and um, <clears throat> You know, the suicide rate in rural areas is two to three and a half times higher than the national average, which is 14.6%. So what does that mean? The rate is 30 per 100,000, maybe even 45 per 100,000 in the rural area. And again, the stigma is so powerful in small towns. I mean, sometimes people don't even want to park during the week in front of the church well, oh, oh, there's Glenn's truck over at the church. What's he doing in talking with pastor? You know, <laughs> hey, I saw your truck. You know, so all those things kind of get in the way, not so much in, in metropolitan areas, but certainly in rural areas. Mm-hmm.
2: Because we tend to be a little more known to each other in rural areas. Yes. So why do you think the suicide rate is so much higher in a rural area? Is it the stigma of not seeking out help, where maybe folks in more of a metropolitan area have some anonymity and it's easier?
0: Well, I think you're onto something there, Shelley, without a doubt. But rural culture, whether or not you're a farmer or a rancher, you probably were raised on a farm or a ranch. And uh, if you weren't, people are independent, proud, and self-sufficient. Mm. And they, i heard one Lutheran pastor down in Iowa told me, we keep our craziness to ourselves, you know, <laughs> so even the yeah. term craziness, yeah. you know, there's so much stigma about mental health, and not being able to, so to speak, cut the mustard, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's even worse among men, I don't know, there was some preliminary um, material that came out, I think last week, about the 2020 two rate. We're always two years behind, you know, because it takes two years for all the data to catch up. And they said that they saw a very, very strong increase among white males, even more than before. And so as as young men, oh, we're, we're little boys and we're comparing the size of our muscle or whose dad can beat up whose dad, whose truck is bigger. We grow up as men, I think, in a very comparison Type of culture, we're always comparing ourselves to one another, you know, and so it causes men who are struggling to keep that a secret because they don't know how to deal with that. So I think in in healthy marriages, men learn how to uh, you know talk about these kinds of issues, but in proud, independent, self sufficient cultures, that's not common.
1: Hmm.
2: Yeah, and social media probably doesn't help that comparison game because it's it's pretty much our culture anymore, right? And it's not even comparing to reality. It's comparing to what we is what we aspire to be or what we hope is the best of ourselves. We're not even putting reality out there.
0: That's for sure and 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 Shelley again, you you just nailed it in that I think social media we put our best uh, image forward. yeah. I remember hearing a story of a woman. She was at the pool for a while. She was very well made up. And she was taking pictures of she and her little one in the in the pool. And afterwards, she got up and left. And, and people wondered, well, what was that all about? Well, she was getting some nice pictures of summertime at the pool. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, you know, and it's not just uh, women. It's guys, too. We always want to look our best, don't yeah. we?
2: Of
1: what we put on social media, yeah, yeah, and uh, you've articulated so well, Glenn, some of the the challenges around uh, suicidality and suicide prevention. Um, what what can congregations do? So I just imagine there are folks listening to this podcast episode, and um, they may almost feel paralyzed because you you know we've delineated what the challenges are and what some of the problems are, but. I can imagine, and just even for myself, you know, when you're confronted with that reality, how do congregations become a place of safety and a place of awareness on this issue and and do it well?
0: Well, again, I go back to training. Uh, Very few um, clergy who have a Master of Divinity degree have more than one class in pastoral counseling. And generally, it's on active listening, and referral you know and even then the class on active listening when we're new in the ministry we're so full of knowledge that uh we just want to tell people about the <laughs> theological issues <or> the <laughs> biblical promises of god you know we don't listen and it takes a while for us to learn to listen but back to the question so one in three, we found across the country and, and in studies, one in three clergy have no training in suicide prevention. And half that are surveyed, this is research done by Dr. Karen Mason at um, Gordon-Conwell Seminary. She is our preeminent national researcher. She's got three books out, wonderful. But half of those surveyed maybe have five hours of less of suicide prevention training. And those who have received training respond with more competent expertise. And the number of suicide intervention training hours predicted the quality of their intervention and their ministry. Now, also in churches, there are people with lived experience. Now, a lot of the times the pastor loves these people, prays for them, understands the journey they've been on. But like many people who have suffered, once they have moved through the healing process, they can be powerful advocates for whatever the type of suffering they have been through. And so the pastor being trained and then mobilizing a team of people of faith to join him or her in collaborating with the community and other churches. That's what we're seeing across the country in small pockets. But just like CPR training decades ago, it was kind of something only for first responders or for lifeguards, right? Well, I would imagine all of us have been through CPR training and we kind of know what to do if if somebody were having a heart attack after we called 911. You know, we would at least try. Um, So to me, It's the training that gets over the stigma of suicide, and it's the training in suicide prevention that can often support openness to learning more about mental health, about crisis, and they're mutually supportive. So, yeah, so that's how a congregation can start. And also, especially in rural areas, congregations have buildings, and in those buildings, they can support training for local areas. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's not until there's been a death that most people want to become motivated, mobilized to do something. Let's try to get some of that training out there before there's a death. And oh by the way, about 50,000 deaths, but they say that there's about there's about uh, 1.5 million attempts. So Each, those deaths impact and the attempts impact, we'd probably reduce both of them if the church were more comfortable talking about suicide prevention and mental health.
2: I love the comparison to CPR because you're so right because it it just gives you tools and you don't have to be the answer person or the be all end all, but you're the stopgap. Like I can do something now until the first responders arrive or until I can get you in therapy. I at least have some tools to walk with you for a while. I like that.
0: Absolutely, Shelley. And, you know, we really want to take the pressure off of our, our ministry leaders. You do not, you will not be the subject matter expert, but you should have some expertise in these areas rather than being fearful and referring Everyone. And oh, by the way, if someone has a mental health or some kind of life crisis, yes, they may go to a behavioral health expert or therapist. But as the pastor, you're still going to be supporting that person, aren't you? Mm -hmm. You'll want to know updates. You'll want to know kind of what kind of questions to ask, you know? And if you know a little more about the area, you can hear what they're learning. And oh, by the way, number two is they can become an advocate for help seeking and break through that isolationist view that we find in most cultures and especially rural cultures.
2: Mm. And I would think probably the number of therapists available in rural cultures is much smaller. Um, the, The kind of help you can seek.
0: That's true, but since the pandemic, everyone was so reluctant to telemedicine. But after the pandemic, I think that fear has gone away. Here in Minnesota, we've got two uh, contracts with uh, uh, contracted mental health uh, counselors who specialize in rural farmers and ranchers, and you can pick up the phone and call them, and they're they're part of that culture, you know, and I think. But just like in most professions, people shy away from rural areas. They want to be in the city yeah. uh, and, and, you know, uh, serve. So it, it is a two-edged sword. And, and the other piece is um, uh, peer-to-peer help is effective mm. with training. And uh, we are and always have been, as clergy persons, a powerful resource for developing community a sense of spiritual community, a sense of putting our arms around our local communities, and collaborating across denominations. That really looks good, you know, uh, for the community when clergy work together.
1: Yeah, and I appreciate you mentioning, Glenn. I was actually going to even just ask this question specifically about how congregations can make an impact on their community, and you've already delineated, you know, using your facility as a training space of, you know, reaching out to other congregations that might be in the area and and working with them as well. Are there other ways that a congregation can really be a support for uh, suicide prevention in their their community and in their context?
0: Well, if you wouldn't mind, let me just tell a quick story. Uh, From uh, northern Minnesota, there was a young youth minister that went to a suicide prevention training it was a skill-based uh suicide prevention program called safe talk and um he went to that safe talk training and because his church was very involved in the ministerium and and you know clergy knew one another there was a death at the high school guess who they call they call that youth minister Mm. you know and to come over to the school and talk And that young person who had been through the Safe Talk and who had a resource booklet on things you can do in the aftermath of a suicide was able to coach, uh, have a conversation with the principal and other clergy about clear conversation, uh, communication uh, regarding the death in the school and how to work together for what's called postvention. And postvention is that aspect of suicide prevention that is after a suicide behavior so after an attempt or after a death, there are certain things you can do to not cause what's called contagion, especially among youth, you know that you don't uh, don't do things actions in the aftermath of a suicide that could cause another fragile young person who's maybe thinking of suicide themselves, to act on it. So the memorial, the funeral can become prevention if the family allows the, the clergy person, the ministry leader, to mention suicide. And even if they don't allow that because of stigma and shame, we have ways of talking about seeking help, even though most people in that congregation or in that Um, in the pews know what happened. So, yes. So, uh, again, we're back to education. And, Matt, your question, I think, talks about let me just share a little bit about suicide prevention. So a lot of people think, well, suicide prevention, that's just telling people to get help and seek help and then supporting training. That's correct. And so I talk, so there's three parts of suicide prevention. Prevention is upstream. It's praying for people who might have mental health or who might be struggling with thoughts of suicide. It's giving voice to people with lived experience in the congregation to talk about training. And what's that training about? Well, it's trying to undermine myths, Uh, about suicide Um, also it it talks about how with training you can be more alert and that phase is called intervention when somebody is you think they have thoughts of suicide to know how to naturally transition into the question of suicide and then if they say yes what to do to help them to talk more about it and then what to do in next steps. So that's intervention and then postvention I just talked about. So those three areas comprise suicide prevention. So if you were in a smaller community, sponsoring a training workshop, a skill-based training workshop in your church and opening it up to other parishes, other denominations would be extremely Profitable in breaking through, you know, the reluctance, the stigma around suicide. That would be terrific. And then if you had different levels of training within the region, in other words, Living Works, I don't want this to sound like a commercial, but it kind of is. <laughs> Living <laughs> Works okay. have three intervention training programs, one is 90 minutes long all online called Living Work Start. It is like CPR, but it is skill-based, still skill-based. You use your phone to record your voice, you interact with videos and stop, and you say, well, what questions would you ask at this point in this conversation with this person who's struggling? So that's the first hour, and then for another half an hour, you have to interact with different video scenarios. So it's very skill-based. Then I mentioned the Safe Talk training. That's about a half day. And uh, very, very much, you're you're in a large group of of 30. You learn how to recognize what we call invitations, not risk or danger signs. I mean, if somebody tells you, hey, look for this danger sign, what do you feel? This is really dangerous. Mm -hmm. No, they're invitations. (laughs) People are consciously or unconsciously asking you, hey, will you ask me what I'm really struggling with? Mm. So that is just such a nuanced difference, isn't it? And then um, we have a full-up two-day training, Living Works Assist that I told you about. That's a standard for 988 uh, helpline, crisis line. Well, if you have, like, let's say you're in a megachurch in a city, then you ought to have some folks trained in assist. Some people at start. Some people at Safe Talk. And I would say that START QPR is a very well known training. It's about an hour, it's more information based, but that's kind of comparable to our START program. Um, you know, so there's different levels of training for different roles. Like a youth pastor at least should have Safe Talk, maybe, uh, maybe assist, but someone in that mega church should be able to do before we refer out. And that person who's trained at that higher level will know people to refer to. It all fits together. And if you're in a rural network, maybe there's a pastor, a ministry leader, a youth pastor who's really pa- passionate about this work. And could be you have different levels of training uh, across the area. Mm-hmm. That's a long answer to your question. But <laughs> <laughs> those no. are congregations can do.
1: Saying, saying long sounds negative. I would say that was a comprehensive mm-hmm. answer, which I very much appreciate. Yes. <laughs> so, no, that was great. That was great. Excellent. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and, and I've heard uh, you kind of mention a, a few times, but not explicitly, um, the, the rise in adolescent depression and anxiety that often can lead to uh, suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts. Um, and, and I know that, that there's a lot of concern in our society. I'm a parent. You know, I've got, I've got a 14-year-old and an 11-year-old. Um, there's, my wife and I are terrified of screens for our kids, because that yeah. seems to be linked to these things. But um, can you speak to the the importance in, uh, of making sure that we're prepared for, for these kinds of things? Because it is a more pressing issue now than it seems to have been in the past for, for adolescents.
0: Well, I think it's very clear during the pandemic, uh, there were so adolescence let's 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 first define adolescence. Mm-hmm, sure. You know obviously you have a teenager 13 but did you know that adolescence and full brain development goes all the way out to 24 or so. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that those 20 to 24. And during the pandemic uh, there was some research that came out that uh, one in four uh, 20 to 24 year olds were thinking of su- had thoughts of suicide during the pandemic. And um, one of the things about our youth culture, and now let's talk about secondary, like middle school, high school, I think our young, and those are Gen Gen X, right? Or or is there even a Z. Gen Z? I think yeah, Gen, Gen Z. Z, yeah. They're very familiar because of uh, smartphones and, and social media. They're very familiar with language related to mental health, Okay. And as an elder in my church, I was called, one of our people, one of our staff said, hey, Glenn, could you come and talk to my son? And we had a very nice conversation. But one of the first things he said to me was, hey, um, hey, Mr. Bloomstrom," he said, I have bipolar. Oh, well, tell me what that means to you. Well, he was familiar with the terminology. And he said, well, it's when you're really high and then you're really low and... You know, I have these kind of swings when I'm, you know, uh, very excited and have a lot of energy, and then when I'm really low. But he really, he, he used the words, but he didn't know what it was. And so, back to Shelley's comment, social media, when personalities, influencers, talk about their depression, their anxiety, and their mental health issues, well, it's not unusual um also with suicide when a personality dies by suicide there's always a spike in our 988 line so what i'm saying is our young people a many are isolated because they live on their phones they're not getting out they don't know how to interact as well at parties or face-to-face events. And then secondly, they're very familiar with these terminology and they're immersed in that. And third, if some of their young friends speak to a mental health practitioner and they chat about it later, it's very easy to have that contagion. We find that's the case with eating disorders, one of the most powerful influencing factors for eating disorders is to have a friend who has an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. So I think the really important thing, there's a program called Youth Mental Health First Aid. It's a day-long training, you know, as much as I will advocate for suicide intervention training among youth leaders, we need to talk about what is really a mental health issue. And then we just need to encourage kids to talk to parents and parents to get smart on symptoms of depression, symptoms of anxiety, and have a holistic life where you're accepted for who you are. We, we praise God for how you're built, what your hair is like, you know, all those things that were so important to us when we were in high school, who you're dating, who's, you know, and that just goes back to, as much conversation as we can have. And also, Matt, you said, hey, let's, let's challenge the screens. You know, let's talk about the reality of what's on screens, even among our, our peer groups, and really go back to our theology, that we are loved, we are called, God has created us the way he did, and we need to celebrate and not get into this comparison thing. Again, a long preacher answer, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh,
1: That's great, Glenn.
2: Good answer. You can actually
0: edit that if you need to. <laughs> not at all. Not Any at
1: all. Ideas. I want to keep every every piece. No. Every piece was was great. Oh, thank you, Glenn. So, uh, Glenn, thank you for mentioning the resources that you have. We'll make sure that those are listed in our show notes uh, so that folks can access those resources if they're interested. Also, for listeners, uh, Glenn will be doing two education events with us in February of 2024, uh, the first is on February 8th at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, and the second one is on February 15th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And those will be 90 minute online sessions where you can hear more from Glenn, and he'll be doing some very specific teaching and training that will help equip you on this subject. Uh, if you're hearing this podcast after those dates, we have the recordings. So just email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org and say, hey, can you send me that podcast uh, with Glenn Bloomstrom? We'll, we'll, or send me the, the, the education event with Glenn Bloomstrom. We'd we'll be happy. To send that your way, and uh, and you can watch and access that. Uh, so, Glenn, as we come to the end of our time here today, um, wh- what this is such a, a a serious topic, and and to many such a scary topic. But what's what's the hope? What are the bright spots that we can provide to to listeners where they can step away from this? Um, hopefully, seeking training. Hopefully, seeking to be a support in their community. But where where are the bright spots with uh, with this topic?
0: Well, I, I would say that we never stop learning and uh we've had clergy come to our training you know kind of toward the twilight of their uh ministry career and then we have young people who have not had heard any of these things about mental health um let's take time to uh learn about this it is a very critical issue in our society and let's not limit it learning about suicide prevention or intervention training and limit it to suicide. I believe Mm -hmm. that if we can learn how to be with people who are suffering, we will provide better, more comprehensive ministry. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, it's a ministry skill that our people expect us to have. And uh, we cannot not... Talk with people when they're in crisis and suffering. And also,
1: mm-hmm.
0: number two, develop your own theology of suffering.
1: Mm.
0: Um, I, I just so, you know, theodicy is is one thing, uh, basically uh, solving the problem of evil. But a theology of suffering, go back to the scriptures, dig deeply, and turn that into practical motivation of why God allows us to go through suffering, that we can provide the comfort that we have received for others. Mm. Um, Those would be two things. Uh, We never are too young or too old to learn new things. And secondly, go back to your scriptures and solidify a, a clear theology of suffering.
1: Glenn, uh, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast and thank you for sharing your wisdom uh, and your comprehensive answers. Uh, they were they were wonderful. They were not long. they were they were wonderfully comprehensive. So thank you so much for your time here today.
0: Matt and Shelley, thanks so much for the opportunity, and I look forward to joining everyone in February mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully meeting some good people in Indiana one day.
2: Matt and I are back. That was our guest speaker, Glenn Bloomstrom. And again, because of the sensitive nature of this topic, Matt and I are just going to move into sharing some resources with you. Um, Mr. Bloomstrom is so well versed in this subject and gave us a lot of resources to consider. So uh, we are going to share those with you again.
1: Yeah, so the first thing we want to put out there is uh, the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, and so that was something that I believe was implemented uh, this year in 2023 uh, that they wanted something for suicide prevention, very much like 911. So they have included in the United States at least 988. Uh, so if you are having uh, issues with suicidal thoughts or ideation, or know someone who is, you can encourage them to call that Suicide and Crisis Lifeline just by dialing 988, and we'll make sure to include the link to their organization in the show notes as well.
2: Another organization that uh, Mr. Bloomstrom suggested for us is something called Living Works. And Living Works is a organization that does suicide prevention skills training. And they have three different trainings, one called Safe Talk, one called Faith, and one called Assist. And it's just different levels, um, different time investment for people wanting to be able to have conversations around and about suicide prevention.
1: Yeah, and this is actually the organization that Glenn works for, and so he's the one who's helped develop a lot of these trainings, and as you heard from his resume, he has an absolutely huge extensive resume on this topic, Uh, was heavily involved at the level of the Pentagon in his time as a chaplain with uh, suicide prevention in the U.S. military, so we definitely want to recommend uh, strongly those resources, especially if you liked what Glenn had to say, and as he talked about these, these are skills-based trainings, so they teach you skills in order to be able to help you with this. We also want to mention the Center for Suicide Prevention. They have a section called Safe Talk, Suicide Alertness for Everyone. And it's a three and a half hour workshop, which can help you see the warning signs indicating those that are considering suicide. So another workshop, another training that you can access that that Glenn mentioned.
2: Another training that he talked about is something called Mental Health First Aid for Youth. And this is a training aimed at teachers, parents, family members, youth pastors, anybody who works with students, Um, and it's just a course to introduce you to common mental health challenges that youth are facing, adolescent development, um, and then how to help youth in crisis. looks like a really great organization, and the course is also available in Spanish.
1: Yeah, and they have a lot of trainers all across the country, and if folks that are listening in Northeast Indiana uh, those who know the podcast know that we are an Indiana-based organization, and so we know a lot about Indiana-based resources. Um, the Lutheran Foundation in Fort Wayne does a lot of mental health training. Uh, I believe they even focus and sponsor the Youth Mental Health First Aid at times. Um, so they are definitely. Uh, so that's definitely something that you can look for uh, in Fort Wayne or in Northeast Indiana, but also across the country, there are trainers uh, near you. Also, just want to highlight the fact that we have a podcast episode with Jermaine Alberti that will be coming out and also some education events with Jermaine. And Jermaine uh, was actually heavily involved in mental health first aid at its startup. So uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can uh, listen to our podcast episode or come to our education event with Jermaine Alberti. Well, we also want to mention uh, some of the articles that Glenn talked about It's an Associated Press article called Saving the Farm, Heartland Clergy Trained to Prevent Agriculture Workers' Suicides. And uh, just so you're aware, that's another part of Living Works. Uh, They have not only just their basic training, but they do have uh, a faith-based section to their training, uh, but also one that does focus on rural uh, and agricultural workers. And so uh, this AP article highlights that, but also Living Works provides specific training uh, in those areas as well.
2: Another article that Glenn mentioned is in the Religion News Service on their website, and it's called Americans are in a Mental Health Crisis, Especially African Americans, Can Churches Help? And it talks about the different things that congregations are doing to offer help uh, for mental health things, um, especially when it comes to the African American
1: congregations. One other resource that we will mention is Dr. Karen Mason from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. She's a professor whose research is focused on the clergy and faith community's role in suicide prevention. Glenn also mentioned a couple of her books, which are The Essentials of Suicide Prevention, A Blueprint for Churches, and Preventing Suicide, A Handbook for Pastors, Chaplains, and Pastoral Counselors.
2: And The Essentials of Suicide Prevention is the newer book. That one just came out January of this year. I'm assuming it's got a little more research, a little more up-to-date than the first one. I'm guessing they're both really good resources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're actually not going to add anything to that. I mean, Glenn, just in his expertise, knows so much, and these, as Shelly and I were kind of joking, that they just kind of flowed out of him as he was just having conversations. Yes. So uh, we don't feel like we should ne- really need to add anything beyond that. And again, we do have a number of podcasts on mental health. We provide a whole host of other resources on those podcasts. Um, but also want to take this opportunity to talk about the CRG, which is a website that we have developed and run. It is It stands for the Congregational Resource Guide, T-H-E-C-R-G.org. And that is essentially a database of up to close, close to about 2,000 of the best resources that we have found related to all aspects of congregational life. Um, we have heavily invested in mental health resources because of a mental health initiative that we've been running in 2023 and 2024. Um, so, if you type in mental health, there's there's a ton of resources there. But you can also find resources on all kinds of other things: youth ministry, leadership, communication. Uh, facility-related items, things like that. So please feel free to check out the CRG, dot org, a free website to search resources that we have discovered in our time at the Center for Congregations.
2: As we come to the end of our time with you, we just want to remind you to rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcast. That will help others find this and to be able to listen um, as you do, and that may be with Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen.
1: We would also love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. That's an inbox that we check on a regular basis. Uh, So if you have ideas of future topics of guests that you would like to hear, or any critiques or information or feedback on the podcast, we would love to hear from you at podcast at centerforcongregations.org.
2: And we'd like to thank the Lilly Endowment. They are our funder, and their generous support allows us to work with congregations, um, mostly in Indiana, but also to be able to reach congregational leaders across
1: the world through things like this podcast. So this episode was produced by Crystal Johnson at the Center for Congregations, and we want to do our geographic shout-out, and I've got a fun one this time, a geographic shout-out to Traheris Wales, in the United Kingdom. So thank you to our listeners in Traheris (laughs) Wales. Uh, Wales is on my map because I have been watching Welcome to Wrexham, uh, which is a fun docu-series. Uh, If you don't know about that, it's uh, a way to understand a little bit more about English football. So, uh, thank you to our listeners in Traharis Wales. So, for this episode of the Center for Congregations podcast, I'm Matt Burke. And I'm Shelley Riggs-Jordan. Thanks for listening.